Welcome to Inside America's Minds, a series of original podcasts created and hosted by clinical psychologist, Dr. Jody J. DeLuca. Inside America's Minds features fascinating conversations with everyday people like you and me and their extraordinary experiences. Join us for this thought-provoking episode on Inside America's Minds. And here we go. Another fascinating show today, Inside America's Minds. We have somebody who's very special, Sharifa Hardy. Uh, Sharifa and I go back actually just about at the start of the pandemic. She is an incredible woman, a talk show host, a radio show host, a business consultant with over 25 years of experience, an author, a producer, Busy Girl Productions, a consultant and director of marketing for Punch TV Studios, Spark TV, and the Hollywood Film and Acting Academy. And she's also been a consultant for multiple major corporations. She is also the president of the Black Chamber of Commerce in Long Beach, California. And her talk shows include Ask Sharifa, video cast and podcast, the roundtable talk show, which I had the privilege to be a guest, face-to-face -face talk show, books. She's got signs you might be an entrepreneur and how to discover the entrepreneur in you. And most recently, she is a candidate for the 2024 California State Senate District 33. And welcome, my friend, to Inside America's Minds. I've been waiting for this. Thank you. I've been waiting for the opportunity to turn the tables a little bit and be on this side and be interviewed by Dr. Jody. It's amazing. Thank you for the opportunity. Again, it's such a privilege. So I want to start from the beginning. Uh, I want to go back. One of the things that you had mentioned on your talk shows quite often that was you referred to yourself as the little Y girl. You were always inquisitive, which you have also stated in several interviews has made you the incredible host, producer, director, consultant that you are. But I want to go back to the beginning. And I know like a lot of our audience, Sharifa, I want to know about you from the beginning, little Sharifa? Well, little Sharifa was always envious of people who knew what they wanted to do. You know, I had people who always knew they wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer. I have this cousin who right now to this day is a news reporter for one of the major stations in Columbus, Ohio. But when he was nine years old, he would walk around the house and he'd interview people with a spoon. So we always knew that's what he was going to do. He was going to report the news. And I always wanted to be those people who was like, okay, this is what I'm meant to do. And all my life, I really had no idea what that was. But now being a talk show host, a spiritual advisor, ordained minister, is it was there the entire time is that my gift, I tell people now, is I have the gift of gab and the gift of manifestation, which means that I can talk you out of your money. So my <laughs> talking ability has been there my entire life. I did not know you were an ordained minister. 
Yes, ma'am. Oh my gosh, it's just one more thing. So what is your earliest childhood memory? Being free, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and our home was surrounded by trees on just about every side. So our nearest neighbor was, uh, you know, a few minutes walk. So I always, and then there was grass and plenty of places to run. So that's really how I grew up. And then I came to Southern California to South Central Los Angeles in 1985. So I went from this kid who had the ability to go everywhere and anywhere and just run and run and run to come into the concrete jungle, which is Los Angeles. So it was a change for me um, to be here, it, I, but I just kind of keep some of those simple country girl things in mind. Like I'm very simple. Everything to me is easy. I break it down to the lowest mm -hmm. common denominator in life. And, and that's like really my earliest memories. I, but I also, one thing I, I've always admired and is such a gift that you're such a humble individual because you've accomplished so much, but you retain that humbleness, your thoughtfulness, you never put yourself above anybody. You're always beside them. And to me, that, that was such a commendable and remains a commendable attribute about you. And, and like I said at the beginning of the show, you and I met right when the pandemic was, was starting, actually. Um, and L.A., in Long Beach, where you are, you're still, still pretty much shelter in place. Is that right? It, it's correct to a certain extent. But, you know, I'm one of those people that to a certain extent, our lives have just kind of returned to normal. I've been working remotely for years. So okay. just being at home, being virtual, it, it is nothing new for me. The only time I really recognize it is if I go out and I'm like, okay, let me grab my mask. I always walk back and forth to the car because I get out the car, walk toward the store, I'm like, dang, my mask, go back to the car, get the mask, go back in the store. So that's really the only time yeah. that I notice it. My life pretty much is the same. Even here in Long Beach, they've reopened indoor dining. So you, oh, they can't okay. have many people in a, a location but mm -hmm. you know once you go in you sit down take off the mask life really is pretty much back to normal are you comfortable integrating back into you know the social world what I refer to like most of us are you know we're a little apprehensive some of us are not sure the social cues anymore and when you and I have talked we've also talked about how you are so comfortable within your remote and your home setting how has that been for you it's been wonderful. I mean, I hate to say that in the middle of a global pandemic, you know, I, I hate, I really hate, and I don't use that word lightly, that so many lives were lost. But mm -hmm. for me, it, it became an opportunity to grow. It had it not been for this global pandemic, I know I would not have been as successful with the Roundtable Talk Show as I have been over the past year. I mean, it was only because there were so many people who are forced to be at home and forced to operate virtually that I had the opportunity to have five guests per show, five mm -hmm. show per week. That's 25 people that had it not been for this global mm -hmm. pandemic would have said, Sharifa, I'm too busy. You know, there was a certain mindset of, you know, I only network offline. I don't do Zoom. I don't do virtual. And it was like a negative thing for people. But then when mm -hmm. they're forced to go on Zoom and be a part of these sessions, you have 80-year-old grandmothers and people who never really focused on the internet now are on Zoom. So my life pretty much remained the same unless I went to leave the house. 
And it was incredible because you do show after show after show after show. And and you've got five guests and each show. I mean, and those are, you know, having been a guest on your two of your shows, that's a lot of work for you as a host. How do you keep that memento and that energy level going? I know a lot of people would like to know. It, it is a lot of work, Dr. Jody, but to a certain extent, it's not. Because one of the things that I take great pride in is pretty much automating the entire process. So if someone is, if I meet someone mm -hmm. wonderful such as yourself, I'm like, oh, this Aww. lady is, is amazing. She has this podcast. She's a doctor. She's doing these different things. I can just simply invite you to go to AskSharifa.com and select be a guest to schedule an appearance. So I don't have to try to schedule everyone, find out what day they want to appear, figure out their bio. They go to AskSharifa.com, select be a guest and schedule their own appearance. And I had to do that because mm -hmm. I was trying to do everything myself and what happens is when I came to host the show, I was so tired and worn out from putting everything together, then I wasn't able to give my best. And I said, you know what, I have to do something different. And I found Calendly and Calendly integrates with Zoom. So as soon as a person schedules their information, provides their bio, provides all of their information, their social media, their website, and they register immediately and automatically, they receive the Zoom link. So since they already have their information, when it comes time to do the show, all they have to do is show up. All I have to do is show up and it makes life that much easier. And it because I'm rested, mm. it allows me to be very inquisitive. That's why I think people love the shows. And I say that, yeah. like you said, with all humbleness is because we are so, so often, if you're looking at a show and it has five guests or more, it's usually around a specific topic. Like these are all doctors. These are all engineers. These are all mm. psychics. And what I do is I say, you know what? Let's just have a round table, diverse, organic conversation with no topic. And I just throw five different people from five different backgrounds, from five different industries, five different cultures, maybe at five different locations and into the conversation and just really see what happens. Because like you, I love to get inside America's minds. Uh, and, and, you know, you do it so incredibly and, and, you know, I am so technologically challenged. Oh my gosh. And everything is the old fashioned way for me, but I would never be able to accomplish what you do because of the way you do it. And your brain just indexes it. And then just, I mean, mainstreams it pretty much. How did you go from Ohio to, to Long Beach? What brought you there? What was that transition about? That was my parents. I mean, I was eight years old. So they decided, my mom really was the one who decided Columbus, Ohio was too cold. She was tired of the snow and she wanted something different and she wanted to change. And it was a wonderful experience because it was the summer break. And instead of flying to California, we got into uh, a different van. We got into a hmm. van and a trailer. And it was my grandmother, cousins, and we took this summer vacation across the country and we stopped at so many amazing places. I remember going to Arizona and taking a look at the Indian reservations and mm -hmm. all the jewelry that was created. And it was just a wonderful experience. And that's what brought me here to Southern California. And, uh, and at this point, I've got to say, because I've had the privilege of learning uh, some personal information about you, which makes you even more amazing. So you get to California, you eventually marry. Tell us, bring us up to date with that. Oh, yes. I eventually married that years later. Um, 
when I was, I got married when I was, I think, 20 years old. And I've been divorced twice. And it was, it was interesting. But one of the things that I learned is that I just got married too fast. You know, that, that's really what it came down to because we were kids. We were young. I had my daughter when I was 18 years old and I just turned 45 on the 31st of March. You know, so yes. what you want when you're 18 and what you want in your 30s or your 40s may differ. And it's very difficult to grow sometimes with someone else. And that's really mm -hmm. what happened is he had a certain idea in his mind of what marriage looked like. I had a certain idea in my mind of what marriage looked like. And because now I'm an entrepreneur, I, I realized looking back that both of my husbands, part of the challenge was just the employee mindset versus the entrepreneur mindset and both of my husbands you know one works for the county of los angeles now the other's been at his job for 25 years so these were people who were looking for that corporate steady you know environment whereas i was raised my father's had his own business all my life i don't recall or remember any time where i've seen him work for someone else so i grew up with that entrepreneur mindset of have your own business create your own business but it's a struggle when you're just trying to pay the rent you know and you don't want to lose everything right. so you have to be able to make certain sacrifices and for us we just weren't able to make those sacrifices and move forward together and you have a son as well I have a son and a daughter. Yes, my, my daughter's 27. She lives, she's married and lives in St. Louis. My son lives with me. That's my baby. He's, he's 24. <laughs> so I want to go back to a time which you, you were also so humble. Uh, a time that I asked, we were talking about you and your life and you talked about being homeless. Mm -hmm. And when you talked about it, it was just so moving. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, and that is part of um, my story. It's part of my journey, but it's also a part of those times where you don't know what to do. I was very mm -hmm. passionate about building a company. We were growing a company. We launched that company in 2013. We took the company public in 2016. So from 2013 to 2016, we were writing the business plan, which later turned into the SEC filings. We were building the company, building the website. There was so much building going on at that time, but it was sweat equity in the company. There wasn't a paycheck. When you said we were building the company, who are you referring to, Sharifa? The, the CEO and I. So okay. at that time, the CEO of the company and I, we actually wrote the business plan sitting at my mom's kitchen table. So okay. we, we grew this company, but in the process, you know, I didn't have an income. I didn't have a salary. I just had this belief that this company would be great. It would change the world and it would do so many dynamic things. Mm -hmm. And my most important focus was that I wanted to create jobs. Prior to that, I had already been laid off seven times. So I didn't want to keep having my life, you know, taken apart. And so I was trying to build this company, but I wasn't getting paid. I wound up losing my apartment. I went to live in the studio for the company that we were building and all my clothes and all my shoes were in my car. And so when, you know, I didn't have the money, my car was repossessed. Oh Everything gosh, in yes. the car was gone. I didn't have my apartment. So I went and wound up living in a homeless, um, in a hotel. Okay. And I was there for two weeks. So, so all this is going on. Are the children with you at this time? 
No, my daughter was an adult. She had already okay. moved to St. Louis. My son was 16 at the time and he was living with his father. And so, you know, I had, being that they were older, I had a little bit more okay. freedom, okay. but they've been there through all of these layoffs, all these journeys, all these divorces. They've seen my journey. What, That's and, and what, what is it about all those challenges? Why the layoffs? Why the divorces? Because there's so many people who have experienced the same thing. The thing about the layoffs is that it became a part of the American history. There are so many people basically during this time frame that have been laid off. I've never been fired. I had a company I was working in El Segundo, California. They relocated to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I could have had a job if I'd mm -hmm. taken these small kids to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You know, I didn't want to do that. Their father is here. Their life is here. I definitely didn't want to relocate to Florida, a job here in California, relocated to Chasworth, California. It's about an hour and something drive each way. Didn't want to make that journey. You know, companies that closed completely went out of business, companies that didn't receive their second round of funding. And it wasn't a personal thing, which is why I'm so adamant about talking to people and understanding people who have been laid off. Because mm -hmm. prior to this time frame, America hadn't really seen layoffs in this amount. Usually what happens is either you quit a job or you were fired. That was it. That's what year are we talking about when this, this happened? This, this is too, most people really familiar with 2008. The right. The recession. I was laid off, right. Okay. was 2001. I was laid off in 2003. I was laid off in 2004. You know, so it, it wasn't just 2008. It was just going through this process. But usually when you lose a job, if you're fired, no matter if I admit it to, to you or anyone else, I know I did something wrong. When you're, when you quit a job, you know, you usually quit because there's something else you want to do. Maybe you want to be a stay-at-home wife. Maybe you want to go back to school. Maybe you're relocating across the country, but it's a decision that you make to to, to depart from the company. But when you're laid off, your life is wonderful. I tell people my, my ATM card, my debit card, I used to call, think it was magic because I could swipe it. I could shop. You know, I didn't have to think about whether or not I could afford this outfit or these shoes or whatever, you know, movie tickets. I could just swipe my, my debit card and it goes through. And after it, it's like my income and everything changed through mm -hmm. no fault of my own. I mean, I had just won perfect attendance awards. I had just won employee of the month. I had just had employee reviews where I had top 90%, you know, nothing, you know, you fix this and everything's fine. It's, then they come in the next day and not have a job. The message is, you know, you got punished for doing the right thing in a way. So with that said... You find yourself homeless. What was that like? I mean, I, I have to ask you the questions as a homeless individual. What was your first thought in the morning when you woke up? Your last thought at night? What were your fears? Back to something you said as far as the, the layoffs and being punished, especially with me. Each time, the majority of the time, I wasn't laid off alone. It was, I mean... One company had laid off everybody they hired that year, you know, in 2008. That's when I worked for American Express and they laid off hundreds of employees. So there wasn't a time when it was specifically me that was laid off, which made me feel a little bit better. Okay. So one of the things I knew early on, and I built my first website in 1994 when I was 18 years old. So I had always had a computer. I always had a laptop. 
So I'm not living on the street. I'm living in a hotel. And because I go to the county and I have nowhere else to go and they put me up in this hotel where next to me and around me is all these drug addicts. I remember actually laying, and, you know, they're small little, um, you know, hotel rooms. They're not large, but I went in my room and I basically made it into a cave. Like the prophet, prophet Muhammad would always go into the cave to pray. And that's what it was for me. And I remember not leaving the room for about two or three days. And all of a sudden I hear a knock on the door and I'm like, hello. And it's one of the neighbors. They're like, are you okay in there? We haven't seen you. And I'm like, I'm fine. Thank you. I have these other people checking on me because I haven't left the room. And in these hotels, I could have had a drug overdose or, you know, something could have happened to me. And so I just took my laptop into my room and I've always had this thing where I knew that God didn't bring me this far just to bring me this far. Because I I was like, if if this is it and I'm just going to wind up living on the street, then what was everything for? What was every sacrifice for? And that's really how I looked at it is that this is just a step on my journey and there's so much more greater for me coming up. Uh, Incredible. How Now there's the highs and lows. I mean, just depression, anxiety associated with all those layoffs, the car being repossessed, away from your children, living in a hotel. How, how did you deal with the, with the moods? And, and how did you do it? How did you do excellent it? Excellent question. Excellent question. I always love your questions, Dr. Jody. You're excellent. You're good at what you do. But the Thank thing you. about it is that I, I am one of those people and everyone does what works for them. But I don't claim depression. I don't claim anxiety. I don't ever tell myself I am depressed. I acknowledge the feelings and the symptoms I'm feeling that other people would consider depression. Because okay. if, if you've just lost everything, everything you own, all your clothes, all your shoes, I literally only had the clothes on my back. Wouldn't that make you feel a little sad? Oh, so I just, beyond sad. Hopeless. Right. Yeah. So I just acknowledge and allow myself to feel whatever it is that I'm feeling. It's okay to feel this. To me, and I'm not a doctor, one of the things I always say, you try to stop me, but I tell people, I, this is just me, just the world according to me, but it would be more unhealthy for me to just try to believe that everything was okay and that I'm not feeling down or that it hasn't affected me. I allow myself to feel it, but I never allow myself to remain there. That's where I think a lot of people go wrong is they feel it, you know, and a lot of people, my friends, I'm like, I'm feeling depressed. When is the last time you left the house? When is the last time you spoke to someone else? Of course, you're feeling depressed because you're sitting in a room by yourself with white walls, you know? So you have to change your thought process, change your environment. And so I never focus on the feeling and try to label it. I just understand the feeling and allow myself that moment, but refuse to stay there. And, and the, the fears were not knowing who was next to you, what habits they had, or uh, I, I can't imagine. I, I've talked to quite a few different people who have been homeless over the years and just the fear at night or the fear of losing what little, little, things that they own, including their own identification in some cases. You're courageous in so many ways. Now, tell us how you got up and out from that, from that stage in life. The grace of God, I'll tell you that. Therefore, the grace of God go on. But we actually, 
you know, we actually, despite all of the losses, we actually achieved what we set out to achieve. We took the company public in 2016. We raised funds from 2016 to 2018, and we raised about $6 million. So I was able to create a job for myself. I was able to create a job for other people. And then, interestingly enough, after losing everything, after going through this journey, after building this company, the company laid me off in 2018. And this was the only instance where it was just me that was laid off. And that's because after growing this company, I began to push for more equality and more an executive level of the company than I had. And there was a disagreement and they wound up just letting me go. But the one thing that they couldn't take away from me was the experience that I had. I had taken a company that had nothing and grew it to $6 million in funding. I had taken a social media platform that had zero followers to nearly 30,000 followers. They had no website. I built the website several times. If you even to this day Google anything on that company, every press release that that ever went out I wrote so and nothing's been written since 2018 since they let me go so it's something that I've done and it's an incredible part of my journey and it's something that you know has made me who I am today and you have no um hard feelings for the company or has your continued success been kind of like uh, a vindication in a way you just kept going Yes, it, it was a vindication, but also especially when we talk about being the president of the Black Chamber of Commerce yes. in the Long Beach area, I, I decided this is what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to start because there's no chamber here in Long Beach. And so I reached out to the main headquarters, which is the Southern California Black Chamber of Commerce. And mm. I said, there's not one in Long Beach. I want to start it. And so the gentleman said, okay. And then he came and we had lunch and we talked for a minute. And he, the whole time he's like, well, you're the president and he's naming all these things and what we're going to do and so I was like okay so I get home and I say to myself that was too easy like I felt like stables it was it was too easy that was easy and I was like trying to figure it out and what happened was I wound up getting a call that from a friend of mine the president of the Southern California Black Chamber of Commerce had reached out to them because he saw that the company name on my bio and he knew the CEO, the same CEO who had laid me off and he reached out to them and asked about me. And I didn't even know this conversation had, had occurred. And so that's why it was so easy because he already had known about me. He had already heard about some of the things I've done and he reached out to the CEO for confirmation and the CEO said, yes, yeah, Sharifa did this, Sharifa did this, Sharifa did that. And so that has helped me because of what I've done in the past, no matter that I didn't reach that success still with that company. I didn't remain with the company. I'm still growing. I mean, it's just an incredible story. So I have to ask you, because especially, and you and I have gone through the Black Lives Matter era with the pandemic. What are your views on that? And then I also want to address an interview that you did uh, but, but, but what are your views on Black Lives Matter as a Black woman in the United States? Talk to us about that. But what I believe and my views are this, Black Lives Matter is an organization. It's one nonprofit. And what happened is so many people, white people, Black people, minority people, mm -hmm. Asian people, Latino people, were so affected by what's going on in the world or what was going, it's still going on in the world, that they mm -hmm. felt that they had to do something. So you had millions of people making contributions to Black Lives Matter, but 
a year later, 2021, April, where has that money gone? What has been done with the money that has gone to Black Lives Matter organizations? So I'm very focused on helping communities, helping people, entrepreneurs, helping people who need help. I don't do it specifically through the Black Lives Matter organization, okay. but we all know that Black Lives Matter and we have to figure out a way and we have to be a part of the solution to be able to help these Black lives. Oh, and thank you for that. That's educating all of us. Are there differences in the way you have been treated as a Black person in this country? I'm going to ask you because I trust Absolutely. you Absolutely. and I know you. Talk, talk to us a little bit about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that question. Dr. Absolutely. Joey. I've been dying to ask you. <laughs> yes. I love me some Dr. Joey. Feel free to ask. The thing about it that I realized and what has been different in 2020 uh, what happened last year that I saw that I've never seen in my life, you know, and I can remember back years, it was the first time where you had so many white people who came and said, Sharifa, what can we do? Or you had people who said, Sharifa, I didn't know. I had no idea. And I will always say to them, how can you not know? And, and it's not that people didn't know that racism and systematic racism and, and, you know, so many things were going on is that it didn't affect them. It didn't have, you know, it didn't happen in their world. I talked to so many people who felt, who were just simply, and it's not a judgment. It's not saying they were right or wrong. It's that they lived in this bubble. You know, they lived in this world where they maybe didn't know a lot of Black people or they didn't interact with a lot of Black people. So they didn't realize what the experience is like for Black people in America. So I personally, in 45 years of my life, have never experienced overt racism. That's what people usually talk about, that overt racism where people say, you can't come here because you're Black. You can't do this because you're Black. I'm pulling you over because you're Black. No, but you usually notice it more in what they call the, the microaggressions, where oh, I would walk into say, a store. Say that again, the microaggressions. I haven't heard yes. that term. T yes. Talk to us about that. Microaggressions are really biases. So if I walk okay. into the store and a, a executive or the person working there may see me because I'm black, she just may uh, assume that I can't afford to be in this store. I don't have enough money. You know, mm -hmm. when black people go to, and, and, and racism is so subtle sometimes because people in 2021 can't say because you're black you're not allowed to live in these neighborhoods. There are other ways that that they keep you out. For instance, if you want to move into the neighborhood, this neighborhood may be so expensive that the average Black person can't afford to move into this, in this neighborhood. Mm. So they won't say no Black people allowed. They just make it so expensive that people can't move in there. And so what happens is our worlds are so different because people say talk about slavery and slavery is over and slavery has ended. But one of the things that they fail to take into account is during all these times, the wealth that was stolen through the backs of African-Americans, those people still have that wealth and they've passed along that wealth mm. from generation to generation to generation. So people who are not racist, I'm talking about white people, but they still may reap the benefits because their great, 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 great grandfather may have been slave owners and they have this wealth. So they make sure that they pass it along to future generations, but we never have that wealth. Since we've never had that wealth, we're still starting off at the bottom. We're starting starting off from square one, whereas we could have been on squares eight or, or 12 with that same wealth. And that's creating such a divide 
And that's what it comes down to. Most people don't even understand and realize that when slavery was initially created, it had nothing to do with race. It wasn't about white mm. people hating black people. It was about greedy people, greedy individuals who, who didn't want to work and they wanted to find other people to do the work for them. So what they did was they got slaves who were white people they, or they were prisoners, white people who were prisoners. And they said, you are going to work for us. But what happened was the white slaves ran away. And because they ran away into culture, there's no way, there was no way for people to determine who was free and who wasn't. So they said, okay, this is what we'll do. We'll bring over a race of people, black people, and we'll make them into slaves. And so that way, anytime we see them on site, just by their skin color, we will know that they are slaves. And so this is what started the slave trade and the horrors that happened in America. That's why when I look at people, I don't look at, at people and go, okay, well, they don't like me because I'm black. Usually you'll find that it has more to do with economics and poverty than any type of just people not liking you because of your race. Well, I, and you know, thank you so much for, for, I mean, I for clarifying things, but also the education. I remember it was about last month I was watching some kind of a news story on the sundown towns. Oh my gosh, I had no idea in our country, in these United States. And um, are you familiar with the sundown towns? I am not. What are the sundown oh, okay. towns? Okay, well, apparently they were towns where people who had black skin were not allowed. And there's a lot more to it. But I, you know, again, it, it's, uh, if anything, for me, the Black Lives Matter uh, made me research and get to know, and I was amazed at my own ignorance of the history involved especially as a therapist, and uh, we are trained in diversity and ethics and to respect and understand subcultures, it was a real awakening. So today, as a Black woman, have you found any discrimination with regards to what you're doing? I would say no. I think for me, the discrimination came when I was trying to apply for jobs in corporate America. I mean, okay. people can look at my resume, Sharifa, and understand that I'm, most people think I'm from Saudi Arabia, that I'm not even an American. I was why born why is that? Tell because us. Because the, the name Sharifa is Arabic. So people assume that I'm Arabic or that I'm from Saudi okay. Arabia, that I'm not American. So that's one of the things when we talk about microaggressions and they've done studies that will show that they'll, if you take the same exact bio, the same exact resume, mm -hmm. same history, same experience, same skills, and just test it out and change the name on it, John Smith is always going to get the job before Sharifa Hardy. It's just the way the world is because we're looking at the names and go, oh, well, she's ghetto. I don't want to bring her in. She's she's this and she's not, not going to fit into the culture. So that's the way people look at it. Now, for me, being that I'm not trying to get a job, I'm not trying to get hired. I'm, I'm just me. I just, you know, and people have to deal with me. That's the thing that I absolutely love. If you want to work with me, this is who I am. I can help you. I can help grow your business. I can make you a better mm -hmm. person. So I don't go through the same experiences that I used to before. I, I did an interview and one of the people asked me, they, they asked me, was uh, Shirley Chisholm 
a big part or a big influence in my life. And I said, I love Shirley Chisholm. She was a, a big influence. And they said, did she inspire you to want to have a seat at the table? And I said, well, even though I love her and her mission, my mission has always been not to have a seat at the table, but to create my own table. So Good for you. And, and tell our audience who Shirley is, because not was, everybody knows. She was the first African-American woman years ago to run mm -hmm. for United States president. Right. Yes. But her mission and her thing was, I want a seat at the table. I want to have a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. And me, I'm more like, let them have that table. I don't want to sit at their table. I want to sit at my table. So I don't have to worry about those microaggressions. I don't have to worry about, um, you know, anyone. I want my seat at the table because after all, is that not the American dream? Yeah. And, and you know, you, you've also, uh, again, because we go back we go back now. We have history. You talk about your dad with mm -hmm. so much love. How were you raised? What did mom and dad teach you about being Black in these United States? Excellent question again. Um, my mom's real corporate. You know, she, she's Is been at her she? job, yeah, even now about, I would say, 15 years. Prior to that, she worked for a hospital in Long Beach for 21 years. So my mom's lover, she's more corporate. My dad, again, being an entrepreneur, but my dad is has always, his expression is always, I'm free. I'm a free Black man in America. And I remember going to a grocery store and we were in a parking lot and my dad had parked somewhere he wasn't supposed to park and this police officer came over and just started yelling at him and berating him and telling him to move and my dad stood up tall and proud and he was like you do not have to talk to me like that I'm free I'm a free black man in America you gonna have some respect you know and I wow. always grew up with that you know you can say whatever you want about me or about our race, but I'm free. I'm, I'm as American as you are, Dr. Jody. I was born and raised right here. Every inalienable right that you have, I have as well. So I grew up knowing that, grew, grew up knowing that there was nothing anybody could do to stop me because there are so many rights that protect me. But too, too often we live in fear. We live in that fear of, I can't speak up. I can't say this. I can't talk back to police. No. I have an, a right, the right as an American citizen, and I'm protected by the Constitution just like everyone else. So that's really what I, I grew up understanding and knowing and, and really just being pushed, pumped into me, that you are an American, period. And, and how do you talk to your children? What do you tell your daughter? What do you tell your son? The same thing, that you are an American. You have a right, just like every American. I, I've never given my children, my son, that, oh, this is what you need to do when the cops come or pull it over. Or be okay. polite. None of that. You know, I have instilled in them since day one, you are an American citizen. You have rights. You deserve to be respected. You are not less than anyone else because of the color of your, of your skin. So focus on your rights. What's the right thing to do? And, and talking about race in the legal system, you'll find that too often Black, especially young Black men or young mm -hmm. Black people are treated differently in the system. And that yes. goes again back to the fathers, you know, the, the fathers. Fathers in the homes in the Black community have been systematically and deliberately destroyed. So when you have less fathers in the home and that teenage boy has to go to the legal system and he has to um, fight his case, there's nobody sitting there with him to protect him. He may get 
the court appointed lawyer who doesn't want to deal with his case. And one of the things that they start doing is forcing these young people to accept, um, what do they call it? I can't even think of it right now. Plea bargains. Like okay. that, and people don't understand the plea bargains actually started with Joe Biden. Joe Biden has done so much harm to the black community, which is why Joe Biden is now making a lot of steps to go out and repair a lot of dim- damage mm-hmm. that he personally did. When you take a look at the three strikes law, when you take a look at the mandatory. Tell, tell us, but let me go back to where you talk about how the black fathers have been systematically destroyed. Talk a little bit about that because I, I'm, you know, I want to know, and I'm sure the audience wants to know. This is important stuff. This yes. is America. This is America. And that's what people try to get away from, but that this is America. This is the true America. When, it, when, I, when I say, I'm, I'm going to talk about that, but I just want to go back to the legal okay. system real quick. When you have the young black man sitting by himself, okay, if it's a young white male, guess who's sitting with him? It's his father. His father says, Mm. you cannot do this to my son. I'll call my lawyer. I want him out now. That's what his father says. There's nobody to protect the young black man. So that's why you have some of the um, differences and the discrepancies. If you have the white father there, he's going to say, you know what? I just paid for the town hall. I put, you know, I'm the one who literally built it, get my son out of there. He's having lunch with the judge. He's having lunch Mm -hmm. with all the lawyers every day. So his son is going to go free. Now, when I talk about racism and systematically destroying the the Black family, you have so many different times. You have slavery, which killed a lot of them for generations. You have the war on drugs. If you take a look at the war on drugs, the war on drugs was political and it was created deliberately to just to bring drugs into the communities. I grew up in Los Angeles. That's one of the things that they did. They brought in the drugs into the community. And so if a black person was going to jail for a drug charge, he can get years. A, a white person going to jail for a, a drug charge, they, they'll get... Um, mental illness they'll get help they'll get, they'll get why, why is that though why does that happen why has it been going on one more thing back to when see what people don't understand is the amendments that we have and so one of the amendments which was 13th the 13th amendment this is what people don't understand because people go okay well we freed the slaves the slaves are free but there was a caveat which was considered the 13th amendment not considered it was it is the 13th amendment and if you read the 13th amendment it clearly states it clearly states that a person Mm -hmm. is free unless they are a prisoner right so what you do is you take the physical chains off of someone and then you put them on them in a different way so right after the slaves were freed guess what they did a a person could be sent to jail for loitering a person could be sent to jail for walking for jaywalking a person could be sent to jail for sitting at a a, a whites only station so what they did is they, they find little excuses to turn free people into, into prisoners, because now that they're a prisoner, they're now a slave to the system. They're now a slave to the government. So this person, I don't have to pay them $10 or $5 an hour to do the job. I can now pay legally pay them five cents an hour because they're a prisoner. And I can, if you go down to certain Southern places in the United States to this day, you will still see the chain gains. America's too greedy. Really? Oh yes. 
America's too greedy, not too racist. Be clear. They're too greedy to give up all of their ways. That's why you look into private prisons. Private prisoners are a multi-trillion dollar company. Multi for profit, people can go and buy stock in for-profit prisons that make agreements with the government that these prisons have to remain full. If these prisons don't remain full, the, then the city, the state has to pay the for-profit. That's their agreement. If you don't have enough prisoners, you have to pay us. So they take these little reasons. Wow. The person was standing there. They're just standing there. Oh, it's against the law to stand. So now that they're standing, now they're a prisoner. And guess what? That black male is no longer in the home. He's not there to protect his wife. Now guess what happened? The wife has to work three jobs to take care of the kids. So the father's in prison. The mom is working two jobs or she's on drugs. So who's minding the store? Who's at home watching these children? Now, because there's nobody protecting them, you can hmm. teach them, you can train them, you can abuse them, you can do whatever you want because there's no one there. And so one movie, if you're interested, if you haven't watched it, but watch the movie 13. It's very okay. interesting. 13, uh, Ava DuVernay. Thank but you. What it talks about is, is this. One in three white males is in prison. One in, uh, excuse me, one in 17 white males is in prison. One, okay. in, 17, one in 17 white males. Whereas in one in three black men are in prison. One in three. Do you, do you, what is your first memory that prejudice and racism was part of your life? I would say it, it, it just, to a certain extent, it became something that I knew, something that I grew up with okay. without specifically somebody saying it's because you're black. When I grew up in junior high, I was bussed out to the better schools. Let's just say that. So the majority of the people who were in these schools were white kids. That's who I went to school with. That's who I grew up with. Did they accept you? Some of them did. Um, hmm. Some of them didn't. Some of them tried to, I remember one lady um, in particular, one little girl at the time, she didn't like me. She never said it was because I was black. She never said it's for any reason. She just didn't like me. She wanted to make my life very difficult. Every time I tried to read a book, she'd walk up to me, take the book and throw it. If I'm trying to oh. write, she comes, she'll snatch my pencil and, and I just let it go, let it go. Then one you day- You let it go? Really? I let it go. Wow. Yes. Well, Better than one I day, am. Until one day, because she called me on the wrong day at the wrong time. And she went to reach for my, my paper and tear the paper. And I just grabbed her arm and twisted. And all you heard was a loud crack. And, <gasps> and, and that's what happened to her arm. But it, what, it wasn't- What happened to you after that? What were the consequences for you? I uh, got suspended, I think for three or four days. I don't okay. recall. But that, right. was the, that was the extent of what happened to me. My parents didn't say anything. My parents didn't care because my, I have always, you know, my dad, I, I took karate when I was a kid. I'm a green belt. My dad has always taught us that, you, you know, you don't have to be aggressive. You don't have to go on the offense, mm -hmm. but you have the, again, let's talk about our un, in, inalienable rights. You have the God-given right to protect yourself, right. you know, and yeah. being that she was the aggressor in this situation, has she not initiated this, this situation, her arm wouldn't have been affected. So I didn't get in trouble. And then when I went back to school, everyone left me alone. Like there was no issues, no problems. Like the, the, the seas parted when I came down the hall. So that was like the really 
um, the one incident where I, I know for a fact that somebody just didn't like me because not only just my skin color, but these were people who their parents were successful. Their parents were rich. They had a lot of money. And then you got the little black girl coming into the school who's different, you know. So those are the experiences that I typically have in my life. Was there other bullying that occurred? During my life? Yeah. I think there's probably instances where people have tried to bully me after that situation. I nip it in the bud a lot um, quicker, but I'm also very personable. I'm one of those people that yes. I get along with everyone. I've always, you know, I've always had people who were nerds and then people who, who were the dancers and then people who were the gymnasts and the people who were the athletes, you know, the funny people. Like I just had a, a core group of friends and a lot of them are, are my friends to this day and you have such a diversified like you say group of friends including me yes, <laughs> you know and I'm a, I always marvel at that so I want to talk about your personal life you are by far when I think I'm busy I'm like okay who can I compare myself to and then I think of you and I'm like she is the busiest woman I know you are the busiest woman professionally. Personally, how's it going for you? I'm How doing are good. things personally? Things are good. Things are good. I got a, I got a new boyfriend, so that's <gasps> Oh, it. I got to hear. Yeah. Uh, is yes. he able to stay up later than 8 o'clock? Yes. <laughs> and, and it's the funny. other one? <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's so funny because um, this guy, we, it was actually my first boyfriend in high school. Oh, my you know? gosh. Right. And so over the time, we have remained friends. We were that, that person that you, I could always call or I could talk to. He lived about two blocks from my house growing up. We took the bus to school together. And so we would just always remain friends. We were kind of on again, off again. He has been married two times. I've been married two times. So now we're at like, okay, let's just do it. You know, so the as they say, the third time's a charm. And we've just been having an, uh, an incredible time. He's an entrepreneur, so, business owner. He's an I'm entrepreneur happy. as well? Yes. yes. So he gets it. Yes. He gets it. So does he meet your criteria? And I'm going to stop here and ask you, what is your criteria for your idea of the perfect relationship? My friend, you got to tell us. It, it's funny. I know. Yes, it's funny because I laugh that he, I have this idea of what I want and what, you know, what I'll go for. I have a 15 minute dating rule. And if you yes. don't live within 15 minutes and I don't want to date you, I don't, I have a rule against dating men with kids, you know, especially small kids, adult kids are fine. And then I, I reconnect and actually, because we've always been friends, we've always spoke, but we, we got into a relationship and I have a guy who lives an hour away. That's against my rules, but he makes the effort to come see me. You know, I don't <sighs> date a man with small kids. He has a three-year-old, you know? So it's like everything that I thought I wanted in this ideal, perfect world, it, it, he's not. But he's given me so much more that I was like, oh my God, why did I wait so long to give him a, another chance? So, well, life experiences have changed you both, like all of us, with the passage of time. What do you love most about him? I love, you, you are good, Dr. Jody. That's a good I'm show. Just it's being like me. America's mom. 
And that's why you get it. It evens out the lack of technological ability and all my other deficits. <laughs> no, you, you are learning. You are learning. The, I, I would say more than anything else. And again, it's weird. After 25 years, I, re I realized that his biggest yeah. attraction to me is that he finds me funny. He finds me hilarious. You know, when I get into my little moods and I, I want to be frustrated or upset or nagging or whatever it is you want to call it, most guys, you know, like Sharifa, you got a bad attitude or, you know, why are you being and he 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 laughs he finds everything I do funny and when I thought back I'm like I've never seen him mad I've never seen him angry I've never seen him upset I, he just he finds everything I do funny you know he loves my personality he has so many memories of us and I'm like wow. oh my god he remembers everything and it's just a really good feeling to know that someone knows who you truly are, not just where you are in your life, what stage you are, but every step of the way for someone to have been there and been a friend through my marriages and to be a friend for him through his marriages and to have conversations that had nothing to do with us being together in a relationship, but just sitting one-on-one -on -one and having a conversation with someone and truly being a friend. And that's what I love. And does he make you feel safe as a woman emotionally? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. And respects you? Yes. Good. And and he's okay with your busy schedule? Yes. His schedule is, is, is busier than mine. So okay. he, he loves it. Yes. Well, sometimes that makes for a good fit. You know, it's like we talked about on, on your show with Eric Seats, your co-host. Uh, love, happiness, and harmony. Did I get right. it right? Yes, you talked did. Talked about it all being a good fit. So moving forward, moving forward, I want to know more about what's in store for you because you, you are going to change the world one step at a time. And I think running for candidate in 2024 of District 33 is going to be a really big step. Tell us more about that. And then I also want to make sure that we cover your shows, your books, because I know the audience wants to know. The Senate is what I'm passionate about because I feel okay. like I just have to do something. I have to make a difference. My primary focus is on creating jobs with a living wage. And that's one of the things I will focus on to, the, to I take my last breath. Again, being laid off eight times, I've had mm -hmm. my salary go from a living wage to I just got to take this job because I got to pay the rent or I just got to take this job because I need some money right now. And so a job that I really wouldn't have considered before because of the salary, I'm just going to take. You know, I have to get something. I don't want to be homeless And that's again. what you refer to as a living wage? Well, yes, a living wage okay. is, uh, you know, because there are so many people that have jobs, but they still can't afford to, to mm -hmm. eat. They can't afford right. their lifestyle. They can't afford to live. You know, um, you have adjunct professors, which obviously have degrees. I watched a video where an adjunct professor is getting food stamps. They're getting government mm -hmm. assistance. Yeah. And yeah. they're working. And so that's what I mean by living wages. We're paying people wages, but can you afford to live on, on your wage? When you're making $15 an hour, $17 an hour, $20 an hour, but a, a studio apartment, just a studio apartment in Long Beach, California is $1,500. So wow. what, what are you going to do? How are you going to afford to live when you're only making $14 an hour? You know, so that's my focus is that you have people with careers. You have, you know, I want to help them 
career expand. So that's what I want to do with politics because we see the issues. We see the mental health issues. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. We see the homelessness issues. That's a problem. But I just really believe that those are symptoms of the problem and not the actual problem. The problem is, first of all, you have to give people hope because if a person yes, doesn't yes. believe that it's, it's better for me to go out and start a job or start a career, then guess what? They're going to continue to live under the freeway. They're going to live, and I'm not saying that with any negative or any. I the 710 freeway here in Long Beach. When you go get on the freeway near the aqueduct, there are rows and rows and rows of tents that people live in. But those people, many of those people, get some type of social security. They receive some type of government assistance. So if they receive, you know, five hundred, eight hundred dollars a month is not enough for them to get an apartment, but it's enough for them to be able to go and get a couple of things or do what they need to do. So let's give them the hope that they can actually have a career, you know, anxiety, stress, even, you know, Dr. Jody, you may tell me different, but doctors have said there are so many people with mental illness that their lives are fine. Their lives are perfectly normal unless some stress comes in to change their course. Now they're stressed out. Now they're depressed. Now they're anxious. And then you see the mental health become more of an issue, but prior to the stress of losing their job, prior to the stress yeah. of their divorce, they, they live what people consider a perfectly normal healthy life. So I want to resolve the stresses that affect people in order to allow them to live a better life. Wow, I'm excited. I'm excited. And you know, I'm behind you all the way. Yes, ma'am. Tell us about your book, The Roundtable, Face to Face. I, I wrote Signs You Might Be an Entrepreneur, mm -hmm. mainly because I wanted to give entrepreneurs guidance and information on how to be a successful entrepreneur. So it talks about some of the different ways that you can grow your business, some of the different avenues that you can take a look at in order to be successful. And then I launched the Roundtable Talk Show after my run for Long Beach City Council. So I always said they wouldn't give me city council, so I took the roundtable. But I am going to have a platform to have a voice to discuss current events and what's going on in the world. And I also realized through campaigning for city council is that I don't care who the person Person is, whether it's the president, the mayor, the city council person, is not just one person who's responsible for making this world a better place. It's up to each and every one of us. You may not be running for politics, Dr. Jody, but just doing a podcast is your step in making this world a better place. Because if we can understand America's minds, then guess what? We can do things different. We can do mm. things better. We can help that one person who doesn't know what they need to do. Maybe they need to find focus. So it's just about doing each person doing what we can to make this world a better place. What is your biggest achievement when you look back on the history of your life? Your biggest achievement? just simply staying alive. Like that's, that's what I, I'm so grateful for, you know, because people always ask the question, Sharifa, how, how did you do it? How are you so strong? And I always respond like, what were my options? What were my choices? There wasn't like, I could just opt out of the, oh, I don't want the homeless experience. I'll just opt out of that. Well, these are <laughs> things that I had to go through, you know? And then when I tell people that I'm like, I didn't have a choice. And they're like, but you do Sharifa, you could have robbed a bank. You could have started selling drugs. You could have started taking drugs. But each time I made the choice to live my life in a certain way. So when I look back through the grace of God, 
45 years later, I'm still here. I'm still happy. I'm still, I still have my family. I'm so proud of my children and the people that they have become. So my friends, I've had most of my friends since I was in high school, maybe earlier. So I'm just so happy to, to just be here today in 2021. And despite all the challenges, you are so positive. So talking about stereotypes and how you've been stereotyped, what is one thing about you, if people just looked at you, they wouldn't know? What is the one thing about you people wouldn't know or even assume just by looking at you? The one thing I would say, and I talk about this, I have talked, spoke about this on interviews, is that I'm a very, very shy person. It takes a lot for me to, to come out and to, you know, even before interviews, I have to kind of sit and get in that mode. I'm like, okay, I'm going to talk to people. I'm going to be open. I'm going to be vulnerable. You know, wow. I, I, I'm a very introverted person. So I will say I can be an extroverted introvert, but like I'll come out of my shell, but it takes a lot of energy. Even after hosting the roundtable talk show, it airs 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. By 9 a.m. It's like all my energy is gone. I've used all my energy to be able to host that show. And so now I need to rest. I need to just kind of, you know, defrag, take everything out. So most people don't realize that it takes a lot for me to, to, to talk, to, to speak to people. Which is why it's even more of a privilege to have you on Inside America's Minds. Now, a lot of people are going to want to contact you. They're going to want to watch, you know, face-to-face, -face, the roundtable. They're going to want to read your book. What's the best way to get a hold of you or to find you? I always tell people I'm one of the easiest people in the world to find. I'm on every social media platform, Sharifa Hardy. If you want to go to my website, it's asksharifa.com. There are so many ways, but the most important thing is that if you have a question, if you need someone who is a business consultant, if you have questions on your business, if you have questions on just anything in life and you feel like there's no one to talk to, ask Sharifa. You can reach me at asksharifa.com. A message. Is there one message that you would like to leave our audience with? Yes. The me my message is always consistent is that love is the answer. Whatever the question, love is the answer. You talked about how we connected over the past year, but that's mm -hmm. really because you were so authentic. You were always so interesting. You were always so willing to help other people. So my thing Thank is you. if we show love to, to other people, that love will come back to us tenfold. And that's really what I believe in. So whatever you're doing, just ask yourself, am I operating in this moment in love? And if not, then change. My friend, thank you so much. Until we meet again, please take good care and Godspeed. Thank you for the opportunity. This is Dr. Jody J. DeLuca signing off. Take good care, America. Thank you for listening to Inside America's Minds. Don't forget to check out our YouTube channel, Inside America's Minds with Dr. Jody J. DeLuca. The views, information, and opinions expressed on the Inside America's Minds podcast series and on any other related social media pages are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any third party.
The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional psychological, psychiatric, or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay seeking treatment because of something you have heard on Inside America's Minds or have read on any other related social media pages. For emergency situations, be sure to call 911 or go to the nearest emergency department.